Please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1 as we continue our exposition of the Gospel of John. And of course, we have the pleasure now every Sunday, and we should, of course, we are a Christian church, of talking about Jesus, who He is, why He came, what He came to do. That's why we're here. That's why, I mean, sinners need Jesus, saved sinners need Jesus. And so I hope you're being as edified by this study as I am. So John, we're going to, this morning we'll look at chat, verses 15 to 18. Last week I think I said part one. Uh, we looked at just verse 14, so this week verses 15 to 18. So let's stand and honor the reading of God's word. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 14 uh, to 18. So let us hear now the word of God <clears throat> as inspired by his Holy Spirit. And the word, and of course we know that's Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, that he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God was at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God will endure forever. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray as I do many on many Sundays, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. Oh God, our rock and our redeemer. I want to pray this morning that you would work in us and do what you alone can do, and that is to continue, Lord, the work of transformation. Lord, we read your word, we study your word, and that is the information you've given us, God. And I pray that you would be about transforming us from one level of glory to another, as Paul put it, that we might no longer live for our selfish interests, but we might live every moment of our lives for your glory. You've made us in your image and made us for yourself to glorify you and enjoy you forever. So God, I pray we be busy about that now. There be one here who doesn't know you, and no doubt there is. I pray you'd work in their hearts today to draw them to yourself, convict them of sin and unrighteousness. Grant them, oh God, repentance from their sins and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Love you, Lord, and thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you, how many five-star generals we've had in this country, what would you guess? Now, you're wondering, why is he starting out with history? Always start out with history, right? You know, we know Jeff likes dead people and dead things and war and all that stuff, so just bear, stay with me here. How many would you guess? Well, you'd probably guess quite a few. You'd probably say, I don't know, 15, 20. Well, actually, there's only been five five-star generals in our nation's history. Five-star generals, in case you have a history exam this week, this might come in handy. Now, some of you, Kathy, right? So you've been doing this. So, so make someone like Jake might need to write this down. George Marshall, Douglas MacArthur, Dwight David Eisenhower, Omar Bradley, my dad's general, and Henry H. Arnold, who's also five-star general in the Air Force, the only, such, only man ever holds such distinction. Why in the world am I starting with talk about World War II, the Army, and all those things. Well, 
Because we have before us today the one who ranks before John the Baptist, and he says this, right? He ranks before me because he was before me. Indeed, he ranks before all of us. We have the greatest five-star general, uh, the only five-star general over the creation, over all things in the history of the world. That is Jesus Christ, right? And John even points to this. So that's why I start with this, with this illustration. He's greater than, than, uh, than Douglas MacArthur or Dwight Eisenhower or Omar Battle. He is the, of course, he is the general of all generals, and that's what John is up to here, pointing out he is greater than him, greater than a prophet. He, John is not to be worshipped, nor is any preacher or anyone else, because he was before us all. He ranks before John and every one of us. Now, last week, verse 14, uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We learned that he tabernacled, the Word became flesh. God clothed himself in human flesh and lived among us. So this one who rules over everything, this commander, five-star general is the commander of the whole army, right? <laughs> this commander, Jesus, the commander of all things, the creator of all things, clothed himself in human flesh and dwelt among us, and indeed dwells among us today, right now in our hearts, for those of us who are redeemed. And if that doesn't astonish you, you cannot be astonished that Christ became flesh, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And he went on to say, we have seen his glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're going to flesh that out a bit more today. We looked, took a whole sermon just to look at almost every word of that verse because it's so vitally important in understanding why God became a man, why he needed to become a man, and what it is that saves you from your sins. So Jesus, we go start this today with John the Baptist. We're going to visit with him again next week. And, and my first point, we're just going to spend a couple minutes on this. I mean, I'm going to, Jesus is the five-star general of history. Now, that may sound like a silly point, but this is what this is the point that John the Baptist is making here. He who comes before me ranks before me. In case you're thinking of worshiping me, John said. In case you're thinking of following me, well, no, don't follow me. Follow Jesus. I mean, John the Baptist's ministry preceded the public ministry of Jesus. Yet being the Word, being eternal, being very God of very God, He's eternal God. There was never a time when He was not, remember? Talked about that a few weeks ago. God's, Jesus has always been God. He's always been here. He existed before God and He ranks before John. Jesus is the five-star general of history because He is the Redeemer to whom John, who is the final Old Testament prophet. Remember we talked about that a couple of sermons ago, the final Old Testament prophet. John was the forerunner. He said, no, I'm not the Christ, but I came as the forerunner to Him. So John was just kind of a colonel or a lieutenant or a, a leader of far lesser rank. And that's what he's telling him. He's telling us and he's saying that about himself and, of course, by extension, us. I mean, Jesus ranks above every human being who ever lived. So he's announced Jesus. We've met John the Baptist already. We're going to spend more time on him next week. So let's move to my second point. You're saying, man, we're going to get to that chicken before long. Well, not so fast. Verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus brought with him every grace we will ever need. This this is glorious. It's very simple. It's a very pithy verse. Jesus brought with him out of his fullness grace upon grace. In other words, everything you will ever need in this life and in the life to come, Jesus brought with him, grace upon grace. This is the greatest news ever proclaimed. The Reformation expressed it this way, sola gratia, grace alone. That's it. That's why you're here. That's what brought you here this morning, right? 
Uh, that's what brings you here every Sunday morning. That's what gets you up, I hope, every Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's grace upon grace upon grace. Sola gratia. We are saved. We love to celebrate that here. We are saved by grace alone. Through faith alone and Christ alone, of course. We're saved by God's unmerited favor. And it is Christ alone who supplies all the spiritual needs for all believers. So there is in Christ an infinite fullness. And this is what I want to encourage you with this morning. More than any other point I'm going to make, it's this. There's an infinite fullness in Christ to provide for you everything you need for life and godliness. Everything. Nothing lacking. This is, what, this is John's point here. In him are hidden all the treasures. All the treasures, Paul puts it in Colossians 2.3. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to be wise? Follow Jesus. You want to know true truth, true knowledge? Follow Jesus. He says grace upon grace. And I love this. There's a hymn we sing sometimes. Uh, grace upon grace flowing down through the pre precious blood of Christ. I've sung that lately, but it's a, a glorious new hymn. Because every day you need grace. I needed grace to come here this morning and do what I'm doing right now. I could do this in my own strength. And you couldn't either. You couldn't do what you do. You couldn't come and worship God in your own strength. You need grace upon grace. And John is telling us that in Christ there is laid up as, in, as if a treasury, a boundless supply of everything that any sinner will ever need, whether in this life or in the life to come, both in time and eternity. So this impacts now and the future, right? Everything when you come to Christ. All things in him. You say, well, how does it impact the now? I know he's, he gives us what we need. Well, think about this. God has literally unzipped you, as it were, and climbed inside of you in the person of his Holy Spirit and is right now reigning in you and he is transforming you. If you do any good thing, anything that honors God, it's because of the Spirit living in you. So Christ dwells. Remember, he tabernacled among us. One of the ways he tabernacles among us is actually living inside you. How much more gracious could the grace be, right? I'm going to come with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be in you. I'm going to enable you to live out the wisdom and the knowledge that you know, that you come to know in me. So in the person of his Holy Spirit, whom, whom Scripture often calls the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit conveys as from a great tree root. Think about this. Why do you, we're, we're, we're coming into spring, my favorite season, because we're coming from death, the death of winter, to the life of spring. It's warm outside. It's baseball season. <laughs> yeah, I know I had to say that, right? But think, about, think about what's in bloom now. Think about the, uh, the, the, the tree roots, the sap, and all the things that's flowing through the trees and feeding uh, the chlorophyll that's causing the leaves to come back. And they, they're, they're back down the deep south. I can tell you that already. Not so much here. I pray they've come soon, right? But that's, that's who we are as believers. It's the, the Spirit of God living inside us. Give sap and vigor to all the believing branches. The, the New Testament calls us this. All the branches have been given life in Christ. And so Christ, Christ is rich. He owns it all. He is rich in mercy. Christ is rich in grace. He is rich in wisdom. He is rich in righteousness and redemption and sanctification and all the rest. And see, this is what you get when you come to Christ. All these gifts, they become yours. And this is how you're transformed, Right? Old Testament saints only saw Christ from far off, not face to face. They were saved by believing in what? The sacrificial system? 
Well, no. The sacrificial system pointed to the Messiah to come. They were believing in the Messiah to come, but he had not come. He's come now. And we're looking back, aren't we? Back at him, back on Calvary, back on the Messiah, the one who's tabernacling among us. J.C. Rowell said, Every saint in glory will at last acknowledge that he is Christ's debtor for all he is. Jesus will prove to have been all in all, every saint throughout history. And Jesus has a fullness of all the spiritual blessings we need. We need like nothing for those of us who are in him. There's never a circumstance, never, never, never beyond his ability to provide. <clears throat> My wife and I were talking about this yesterday, how we can look back over our lives and there's a sense in which there's never been a moment Never one moment when we couldn't sense that God was with us. I was telling her this, I might be 55 here in a few weeks, and I just have a sense of God in my life, and I wasn't saved at the beginning, but just since it's from childhood to now. Because he's with us, isn't he? He's with us. And there's never a circumstance beyond his ability to provide, and you know this, surely, because of being here today and looking back on your lives. I mean, the wine ran out. We'll look at this in a few weeks. The wine ran out at the, the wedding feast at Cana. Jesus had the fullness and abund abundance to provide the highest quality wine. They went to him. It's run out. Here it is. It's the highest quality wine. Huge crowds were hungry. 5,000 men, 4,000 men, and women and children besides. And he takes five loaves, two fish, and does what? He feeds them all. And not only that, there's 12 baskets of leftovers. There's abundance in Christ. There's everything we need, right? And that's what he's showing us. Everything we need. All the needs out of his infinite, almighty, divine life, out of this inexhaustible well of love for you and for me, for those who are his people. And so the phrase here is grace upon grace. Beloved, do you sense that in your life, that it's grace upon grace upon grace? Do you pray for this promise? Say, God, today I'm having, this is having a bad day. I need grace upon grace upon grace. Sometimes that's just my prayer. I need grace upon grace upon grace. As I put it, fresh stores of grace to crash upon the shores of my life every single day. And he says he has it. He provides it here. So there's grace who, for all who come to Jesus in this never-ending provision. And that grace can take many forms. He can bring faith. In fact, he enables us to believe, right? When we're saved, <clears throat> we're saved not because of anything we do, because we believe in him, we trust in him. And even that faith, Paul says, is a gift of God. He comforts us with his peace. We're in the middle of a tumultuous world now, right? It's almost a cliche now to talk about the whole society's going to pot, you know, the post-COVID, all this stuff. But we serve the Prince of Peace, and he has an abundance of peace, we're anxious, we can flee to him and find peace, can't we? That's where we find our peace, in the Prince of Peace. Because all these things, all these circumstances, they belong to him in his sovereignty. And he rules over all of them for our good and for his glory. And he comforts us. He encourages us with hope. We live in an age where I, I can't ever remember. Doug and I were talking about this today. Never meant a greater sense of hopelessness. It just pervades like a, like a darkness. does. It's almost palpable. Hopelessness. But not for those in Christ. You have the blessed hope. You have a hope of a, uh, a, 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 of a treasury laid up in heaven for you. This great inheritance in Christ. Something money can never buy. It may fade here, you know, you're, <clears throat> but what you have there can never fade. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
<clears throat> he enlivens us with joy. Sometimes I don't feel like I, I feel like I like joy as a, as, a, as, a, as a Christian, as a pastor, but pray for joy. We pray for joy. He gives it, right? Jesus isn't stingy with these things. I don't think we need to be praying for each of these things. He's not stingy. He gives these things without measure because different situations in our lives require different kinds of grace. And his storehouse of grace never runs out. Never, never, never. William Barclay put it this way. He said, we need one grace in the days of prosperity and another in days of adversity. We need one grace in the sunlit days of youth and another in the shadows of age when the shadows of age begin to lengthen. Now, I'm beginning to resonate a little more of that all the time, right? Shadows of age that lengthen. We need a different kind of grace than when we were young. Maybe when you're young, it's the grace to be restrained and self-control, right? <laughs> Maybe when it's you're a little older, it's the grace to have energy, to have joy. He goes on, the church needs one grace in days of persecution and another when the days of acceptance have come. Oh, when the church has been accepted, when the church has been, and the majority of the church has been weak. We need to hear that in America today, don't we? That's what he's talking about here. He lived in a time when the church was being the church is coming out of having been accepted for 100 years ago into eclipse. Protestant liberalism was born during this time. He's, he's, he's speaking at the time of J.C. Ryle, actually speaking, looking back. Barclay, that's the, 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 the uh, context of the quote. So we need one grace when we feel that we're on top of things and another when we are depressed and discouraged and near to despair. The grace of Jesus for us is inexhaustible. And so this text should really encourage us today. We should leave here encouraged knowing that we have, we're, we don't know what a day is going to bring. We don't want what we're going to face. And yet we have Jesus. We have his grace for that circumstance. Every circumstance, custom fitted for those circumstances, right? So we need not despair. So Jesus is the Savior for all who long to be filled and nothing else will satisfy the souls of God-made men and women but Jesus. When you think of Ecclesiastes and Solomon and all the partying and all the, the wild life and the, the rich life. And, the, uh, you know, I, 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 that, that resonates with me because as a young man, I tried some of these things and nothing fulfilled my life but Jesus. Because nothing can do helpless sinners good but Jesus, right? We, when we start to understand this, it has two effects on our lives. One is this. When we understand that Jesus gives us grace upon grace and we can have satisfaction in any circumstance. And I've been praying for years now about what Paul said in, in Philippians 4.11, and I know I've not achieved this. And if you don't, you believe me, ask my family, they'll tell you, boy, you need to pray that some more. He said, I've learned the secret of being content. My wife's laughing over here once ago, just like, you're the king of discontentment. And it's true, right? So you can pray for me. You want to pray for me? Pray that I'll be content in every, each and every circumstance. That's what Paul said. He said, how? Why? Because I can, I'm going to get stronger. I'm getting better all the time. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and turn over a new leaf, kind of like a New Year's. No, he says this. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, of course, we usually boil that down, don't we, to kind of this cliche that sits on our desk and think we can leap spiritual buildings in a single bound, all these things. I can do anything. Anything my mind conceives, I can achieve. No, no, no. It's actually a far greater promise. He's saying you can be content no matter the circumstance. And when you know that Jesus has grace upon grace upon grace, and again, I'm preaching to myself here, grace upon grace, then you can be content in any circumstance. In ministry, ministry, again, this is what Doug and I were talking about earlier, harder than it's ever been probably, right, because of the circumstances we live in. But we can have joy in what we do because we know 
that there's grace for every circumstance. There's grace for every church. There's grace for Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. You know, lately we've gotten a little smaller. Let's just be honest. We've been through some things, haven't we? But there's grace for that. There's grace upon grace upon grace, isn't there? There's grace. He's not called us to give up. He said, no, apply, as the old Puritans put it, apply for grace. He'd been filled out a form, pray. You apply to him for more grace. For the leaders of the church, for you, for us, right? There's grace for every circumstance. I got a friend in Georgia, his church is growing so fast, he doesn't know what to do with the people. He's like, pray for us. We're, I, I'm not even sure how to handle it. I'm competent enough to handle this large of a church. Man, pray for me. There's, there, there's grace for that, isn't there? As Barclay said, there's different kinds of grace for different kinds of circumstances, and God custom fits those through Christ in every, every circumstance of life so that we can, we can have peace, we can find satisfaction in every circumstance. I said two effects. The second one's this. We can give grace to others. It just it doesn't just affect us and how we think about our circumstance, but we have grace to give grace to others. Think about it. I mean, Kent Hughes said, when grace flows into one's life, grace begins also to flow out. As the grace you have received flows out to others, more grace will come, and then more grace, and then even more grace. See how that works? The more grace you give, the more grace you're in position to give. The more, the more, sorry, I'm tongue-tied this morning. The more grace you receive, the more you're in position to give. He gives more grace so we can give out to others. Think of it this way. I love this illustration. I owe this to Rick Phillips. There are two great seas in Israel, okay, which Scripture speaks of often. There's the Sea of Galilee, you see this a lot in the New Testament, and the Dead Sea. Think of the two seas. And the Sea of Galilee teems with life. It's a normal stream, right? And the Dead Sea, well, it's called the Dead Sea for a reason, right? It's lifeless. There's nothing there. And what's the difference? Well, water and minerals flow both into and out of the Sea of Galilee while water just flows into the Dead Sea. So, so it is with the Christian. Grace upon grace flows into us and then we're able to enable it to flow out to others in a selfless kind of way. Because of the selflessness of Christ toward us, that grace can flow out in forgiveness. When relationships are broken, we're, we're free not to withhold forgiveness from others, to, to hate them, to want to pay them back. We can forgive others, right? We can be reconciled to others when relationships are broken. We can be patient with others. And boy, I'm really preaching to myself this morning. When our children are at their most trying hour with us, and if you're not there, you will be there, parents of young children. If you've been there and you've lived through it, you're like, I know what you're talking about. If you don't have children, you'll have children someday and you'll be there. But you can have patience. It's grace upon grace, right? You can, your grace can flow out to them because of the grace you've been shown in Christ Jesus. We can serve others. We've been served, right? We've been given this abundance of grace. We've been forgiven. We've been, we're being sanctified. We've, been, we've had a son come and die in our place, and we can serve others. Our lives can exist for them in 10,000 different ways. And that's the church, isn't it? That's the church that receives so much grace, we should be the first ones to go out and give out grace. Not just in the sense of understanding others, being patient, but, but doing things for other people. Yes, feeding the poor, evangelizing the lost. All these things. I mean, there's a thousand ways we could tease out that would be right, that we can give grace to others. Luther said, I love this quote, so I put it up here. 
this fountain. I love the thinking Christ is a fountain. You know I love the hymn, There is a Fountain. I mention it like every other sermon. <laughs> One of my favorite hymns. Christ is a fountain. And Luther says, this fountain is inexhaustible. It is full of grace and truth before God. It never fails no matter how much we draw from it. See, it's, it's bottomless. You know, it's like, what's the restaurant that serves bottomless fries? I'd like to know if they're really bottomless. I doubt they really are. You know, you stay there and eat for hours. I doubt they probably kick you out eventually, right? All you care to eat, the underscore the care. <laughs> it's not all you can eat. It's not really exhaustible, but this fountain is inexhaustible. You withdraw grace. You withdraw grace through prayer for every circumstance, and there's more grace. And there's more grace. And there's more grace. You're full of anxiety. You go pray for that, and he gives grace. And then you get anxious next week, and there's more grace for that. He's not stingy with his grace. The red robin might be stingy. That's who it is. They may be eventually stingy with the fries. Jesus is not stingy with his grace. And you're living proof of that, and so am I. In fact, I'm standing here preaching God's word. That, that's living proof, isn't it? So you better know it. Luther said, it remains a perennial fount of all grace and truth, an unfathomable well, an eternal fountain. The more we draw from it, the more it gives. That's the Savior you have. And if you don't know him, that's the Savior you need because that's who he is. And he'll give you grace. That's not to say you have an easy life or the prosperity gospel. You know, well, you just have a great life. If you come to Christ, you'll be wealthy and healthy and wise and all this. Well, any fool would sign up for that, right? That's not what he's saying. But you'll have true peace. And true riches laid up in heaven for you. So he goes on to say, verse, that's verse 16, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. So he shifts a little, grace upon grace. And he says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the law comes through Moses. Why does he shift to the law? We were just talking about grace upon grace. Why do we have to bring law into this, right? That says do. Why, why do we need that? Well, I think he's making, drawing both a contrast and a comparison here, both. Grace and truth truly existed in Moses' day. The law is not just some kind of angry, mean-spirited God. It's not that. We know that, right? There's not two gods in the Bible, as some liberal theology teaches. So it was grace and, grace and truth in, in Moses' day, but they were fully revealed in the coming of Christ, the Old Testament law, the moral law of God as summarized in the Ten Commandments showed God's holiness. It showed our sinfulness. It showed our need for a Savior because we couldn't keep it. Could we? What does it take to get into heaven? Perfection. Do you have to be perfect? Is heaven for perfect people? Yes. There's a country song that said, I've learned that heaven's not just for sinners, but saints with sinners. And I think I know what he means. Sinners saved by grace. But it's for perfect people. And you say, well, I'm not perfect because I broke the law. The law shows we're not perfect, right? Because that's why we run to Jesus, right? So the law came through Moses, and it showed us God's holiness, his spotless character. It showed our sinfulness and our need for a Savior, both truth and grace of a sort. The law could reveal our sins, but it could not save us. It can only condemn us. It can only expose our sinfulness. It can only unmask us as, as traitors against our creator. And the law is holy and righteous and good, Paul says, but it only brought us death. Turn to Romans 7. Turn to 
turn back to your right, verses 7 to 12. Let me read this really quickly. Paul says this about the law and sin. And he has the moral law of God here in view, I believe. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. See, the law tells us what sin. You should not covet, right? I covet. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. See, there's life in the law, but it's life that brings forth death, right? Because it shows us our covetousness. It makes us want to covet for outside of Christ. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive, Paul said, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So sin came alive and it killed Paul. Because it showed him that he's dead in his trespasses and sins, right? Sin sees an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. So it's righteous and good because it kills us that Christ might bring us life, right? Because there's no life in the law. It slays us, and Christ raises us from the dead when we trust in him. Because the law says, says do. And we say, I can't do. And Christ says, done. There's a quote often attributed to John Bunyan, one of my favorite Puritans, and probably not spoken by him in reality, but I like it anyway, spot on. It says, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. You see that, Beloved. It bids us fly. The law says fly, and Christ says, no, I'm going to enable you to fly. I'm going to give you wings. We can't be good enough for heaven, can we? We can't be perfect. We have to be made perfect. That's the good news of the beauty of the gospel. The law provided blessings to law keepers, but it offered no help to sinners. It is a train without an engine. It's a car without a motor, right? You have an old... Back where I come from, guys would have like three bodies and one motor. They'd move them around all the time. Move them around. They'd put them on a block. I don't know why they did this. But they would put them, under, you know, usually in a winch in a tree and then drop it down in there and they'd drive that car. But the other cars were just bodies, right? Now that is the law. That's what the law enables us to do. Nothing. We can do nothing, right? We can't move until the engine, the motor of God's grace enables us to move. That's what the gospel does. It helps sinners. It brings us to Christ. A.W. Pink, and this is the week for quotes, evidently, so just bear with me. I find these, and I like them, and so I share them with you. So that's just the way it is. Law manifested what was in man, sin. So that's the x-ray. It takes the x-ray and says, terminal. Terminal illness, dead in sins. Grace manifests what is in God, love. God loved you enough to send his son to die in your place. He goes on, law demanded righteousness from men. Again, perfection. Grace brings righteousness to men. Law sentences a living man to death. You're under a death sentence if you're outside of Christ. He says grace brings a dead man to life. This is beautiful, isn't it? Law speaks of what men must do for God. Grace tells of what Christ has done for men. And in that first phrase, you have every false religion that's ever been perpetrated in the history of the world, right? Right? Law speaks of what men must do for God. We must pile up enough righteousness, treasure up enough righteousness to make it to springboard ourselves into heaven. But Christianity 
The grace of God tells us what Christ has done for men so we might be springboarded into heaven, right? We might be saved. Because the law, Galatians 3 and 4, tells us it's a schoolmaster. The moral law is given at Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments was holy and just as good, but it could not justify. It's kind of like my, my, my elementary school principal, Mrs. Wimpy. Man, was I ever afraid of her. She was about this tall. And she struck fear into the heart of every elementary school in my hometown. I can picture her right now, and I begin to sweat. Because back then you could paddle, and she walked the hall with the paddle. She was a schoolmaster, and we did not trifle with Gray Pell Wimpy. Now, I got to know her, went to church with her a bit later, and she was a wonderful and sweet lady. But when I was in the fourth grade, man, she owned me. <laughs> she was a schoolmaster, and I thought a hard schoolmaster. And that's the law. The law just, the law showed us, it taught us who we are and the impossibility of being righteous. And she taught us the impossibility of being righteous, right? It was the whip. But Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says something glorious. Paul says, when the fullness of time, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, he had to keep the law too. To redeem those under the law, that's us, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So he was born under the law. He kept the law perfectly. He fulfilled the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He fulfilled the law. He bore our punishment for, as lawbreakers that we deserve to bear. He bore God's wrath in our place. When the fullness of time had come, the fullness of time right here in John 1, that's it. That's what we're reading about. That's what John's talking about. The fullness of time. Of course, Galatians, Paul's explaining, exegeting this for us. We've now received adoption as sons. For everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ, you have received adoption into his family as sons. Let me tell you, living by the law will make you miserable. Most religions in the world are driven by, animated by works. Work our way to heaven, right? Christianity is unique in being really the only world religion that does not rely on good works for salvation. I mean, think of Islam, various New Age religions. Think of the Watchtower Society or Mormonism. All of them have some form of works. Even the Roman Catholic Church, it's faith plus works, right? But Orthodox, historic Christianity is unique in this, in that it's by grace alone, right? I mean, think about how... how Miserable the Pharisees and the scribes were. They had like 623 laws above the laws written in Scripture. You say, boy, they were ridiculous. They were terrible. Well, let me tell you, we're good at being Pharisees and scribes. Aren't we? we can add lots of things to the law ourselves, even if it's just something private. And it makes us miserable, doesn't it? it makes us miserable. Trying to, trying to sort of curry favor with God. I mean, if those people come to your door on Saturday selling their magazines, don't you just kind of feel sorry for them? Like, how many of these do you have to sell today to, to have some kind of assurance that there's heaven? And they'll tell you, we don't know. I had an uncle who was a Jehovah's Witness. By God's grace, he was brought out of that darkness into the light of Christ before he died. Thank, praise God. But he, I said, can you have assurance of salvation? No. None of us can know. Only the 12,000 or 144,000. No, 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 no. We can know that we know that we know, right? Not because we're good, because we've been made good. 
I mean, the law bruises us, but the gospel heals us. Christ came into the world as a son with the keys to God's treasury of grace and truth in his hands. Grace. Grace. It comes full of grace and truth. Grace. God's unmerited favor. We don't get what we deserve. We cry fairness. I want what's fair. That's not fair, God. You chose some for salvation. Not fair, God. Friends, if you got what was fair, if I got justice, I want justice. Okay. If God gave you justice, gave me justice, we'd be on the bottom of hell right now paying for our own sins. Every single one of us with the most notorious of sinners if we got what was just. But see, we get grace. We get what we don't deserve. We get unmerited favor. What a glorious thing, right? That one sinner, even one sinner is saved by God's grace should fascinate us and not make us want to argue with God because we don't deserve it, right? We don't want what's truly fair. Grace came in Christ and he has fully made God known God's gracious plan of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He is the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners like you, like me, plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. All of it. Every bit of it. I love that line. Oh, I'm, I'm, I can't remember it now. It's glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more, and it is well with my soul. Can you say that today and mean it? Has your sin been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more because the sin bearer has come in your place? Can you say that with utter confidence? Beloved, if not, today's the day of salvation. Today's the day to settle it. Flee to him. There's grace. There's, there's infinite grace in him to save your sins, to pay for your... He's paid it all for sinners, all for his people. All our works are tainted to the sin. They won't save us. The grace of God alone will. He came to bring us truth. He came to tell us the truth about us. What is the truth about us? We're by nature children of wrath. It tells the truth about us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the truth about us. We can't do one thing to please God. That's the truth about us. He came to tell the truth, to bring the truth about God, that he is holy and righteous and just. He's a father who sent his son to save sinners. He came to, give us a, to tell us the truth about salvation. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of works so that no man may be. It is the gift of God so that no man may boast. He came to give us, to bring us that truth the truth about types and shadows in the old testament he's a fulfillment of those. he showed us the truth about the mercy seat the truth about the priesthood the truth about all that the prophets foretold he was a truth about kings he's the king of kings and lord of lords he's not a fallen king like david he's a true and perfect king reigning perfectly over us now and forever the full truth about redemption god buying his people back through the great substitute was never known until Jesus came into the world to die for sinners. Even more than that, we finish up here in verse 18. So we kind of land the plane here. No one has ever seen God. So grace and truth came through Moses. I mean, grace, I'm sorry, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus has explained. The word here is exegeted. You know, if you go to seminary, you learn the word exegesis. That just means to explain, to break down the scriptures. That's what I'm attempting to do here this morning. Exegeting the text, bringing it to life for you. 
exposing its truths. That's what Jesus has done to us about God. He's explained God to us. That's a literal word here. It's a form of exegeo. He's explained God for us. He had to, by becoming man, he's revealed God to us. He is, of course, God, the Father, is invisible without form. That's a, a central Christian doctrine. No one has ever seen God. That's fine of what some people may tell you. I've met people who have seen God. You probably have too. But they've not seen God. I mean, Christ brings the invisible and the visible together in a way that has no parallel and no analogy. No one has ever seen God. So that's why Jesus made him known. I mean, Jesus is the only qualified exegete to interpret God to man. Since no one knows the Son except the Father, Matthew says, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him, Jesus said in Matthew 11. I think the New American Standard Bible gives a better rendering here, the phrase, the only God, the only begotten God. The King James and others rendered the only begotten Son. Begotten. I won't go into that phrase. We could spend a lot of time on this. I won't. But just suffice it to say, this stresses Christ's deity and his absolute equality with the Father. We studied that three or four weeks ago, the first five verses. It speaks of his uniqueness as our Savior. There have been five-star generals, yes, five of them, but there's only one Savior. Jesus is uniquely qualified to reveal God to us. And so the next phrase, rendered by the ESV, who is at the Father's side, I think is literally in the Greek, in the bosom of his Father. This expresses Christ's shared nature with the Father. Again, it's hard to get our minds around that, right? We have to think deeply, don't we? But he has this shared nature, one nature with the Father. One God, one essence, yet individual persons. We're going to, we hang, we cling to those truths because they're all biblical, even though we don't fully understand them because of our fallenness. The blessed Trinity. And if God were to manifest his glory in a form we could see, you say, why doesn't God just come down and like appear this morning? Why didn't he just stand right there and say, what are you saying is true? Listen to him. Why not? Well, it's because you couldn't take it. You couldn't stand the truth, and neither can I, right? We couldn't take it. Were he to manifest his glory to us in a form we could see, his purity, his holiness, his, his perfections would destroy us. It would vaporize us. We're in no position to stand before God person to person, face to face. Think about Exodus 33:20. Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory, and the Lord said to Moses, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. If I show you my glory, it will kill you. You cannot take it. That's what God's saying. So God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and passed by, and he saw what? He saw his hind parts. He saw the back of him. He covered Moses with his hand as an act of mercy so that Moses wouldn't die because of the glory. And he took away his hand just in time for him to see the backside pass by because that's all he could take. It's all you could take. It's all we could take. He's a, Moses is just a man because God is holy. Why to do this? Well, God is holy. We are not. Think about Isaiah, Isaiah 6. He has this vision in the, uh, has this vision in the temple. The temple's filled with the glory of God, the train of the road filling the temple with glory. And what does Isaiah said? Man, that's cool. Man, that rocks. No, he said... I am a woe to me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Friends, that's what happens when a sinful man encounters a holy God 
we are undone. We are not fit to appear in his presence and live. This is why Jesus came. It means we need a mediator. Moses was a mediator. We, the Israelites needed someone to, to mediate, to stand before them and this holy God, and so do we. And we have this mediator. We have Christ. I mean, in Exodus 20, the Lord gave Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. The people heard peals of thunder, saw the lightning, heard the trumpet, saw the mountain smoking. They were afraid and told Moses, you speak to us. In other words, we need a mediator. You speak to us, and we'll listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. They knew they couldn't handle it. They knew it would kill them. You speak to us. You mediate. You go to God for us, Moses. We can't stand it. We can't bear the sights and the sounds of God's holiness because we are not holy. I've met people. I met a man one time. He told me that God appeared to him every morning in the mirror when he's shaving. I almost wanted to laugh, but I didn't. Being curious type, I asked for more. I said, so do you even ever cut yourself? He's like, no, I just keep shaving. And I've heard stories like this for many years, and you probably have too, but no one can see God and live, right? I'm not sure what that was. That he saw? I'm not sure. We need a mediator. We can't bear to stand before God on our own merits. In no way we'll be vaporized. Old Testament Israel needed a mediator. Moses was him. Sinful men have always needed a mediator to plead to God for them. That's what Jesus Christ is for you and for me. And that's what he's speaking of here. He's our mediator. He's our attorney to plead before the Father for us. His blood pleads for us, does it? It pleads innocent. It says, Doug Williams, all right, stand and read the sentence not guilty. Joe Hearn, even though he's going out from us today and I don't like it, not guilty. Kathy Williams, stand and you're guilty. But the judge says not guilty because your mediator, your attorney has stood in your place. He stood and said, your attorney's even paid the price for you and you're not guilty because the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that's the perfection you need to get into heaven. And you have a mediator our attorney, Christ. He's mercifully shown himself to us in this mediator. God hasn't. He can't be known unless he reveals himself to us. He's done so in this son, and he is ever at the Father's side. What's he doing right now? Is he watching the masters? Maybe with one eye. <laughs> he's praying for you. He's praying for you. Right now, he's praying for you in this session with the Father. He is interceding for you, praying for you. If he were to cease praying for you, you put yourself in hell in five seconds, and so would I, right? He's praying for you right now. This is why he can give you grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, while the storehouse of grace is infinite. Because Jesus has exegeted, shown us the Father, explained the Father, shown us the Father. Philip asked Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. And Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. One. Oneness in the Godhead, right? A, a one in essence, three persons, equal in essence. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, believe in me that I am in the Father, the Father's in me. We'll get to that in weeks to come, Lord willing. He shows us that the Father, just like the Son, is full of grace and truth. It's not like the Son's benevolent and the Father's kind of mean. No, 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 they're all full of grace. The entire Godhead, all three persons, full of grace and truth, full of wisdom 
J.C. Ralph said, in Christ's words and deeds and life and death, we learn as much concerning God the Father as our feeble minds can at present bear. And even the sermon, it kind of strains our minds to think about these things. His perfect wisdom, his almighty power, Ralph says, his unspeakable love to sinners, his incomparable holiness, his hatred of sin could never be represented to our eyes more clearly than we see him in Christ's life and death. Jesus, if you're here this morning, you're holding out. What are you holding out for? What more do you want in a Savior? He is the unique Savior of all mankind for sinners. He is the Savior for all who are looking for the sure road to heaven. You want to know that you know that you know you can know today by repentance from your sins and faith in Him. You can know that you have eternal life. Our souls were made to be filled by nothing less than God. And Jesus is the Savior for all who seek acceptance. For by His grace we're justified and received as God's own dear children. Jesus is the Savior for all who realize that our greatest glory is to know God. Is that you today? Do you know Him? Have you experienced the power of His resurrection in your life? We'll celebrate that next Sunday. We celebrate it every Sunday. But in a peculiar way we do in our society, and that's a good thing. Is Jesus your Savior? John 3.36, Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Will you trust in Him today? If you don't know Him, will you come to Him repentance and faith in what He's done for sinners at Calvary? And if you've trusted in Jesus, and that I trust is most of you here today, you are drawing from a well, waters of grace from an inexhaustible source that will never run dry, full of grace on grace for everyday life both for time and of course eternity to live for him and to live for others well pray for that grace pray for it every day moment to moment and let us make our motto the words which the apostle Peter closes his second epistle but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him be glory both now to the day of eternity. May it be so in us and through us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I feel like I probably just skimmed the surface here. And in spite of my feeble attempt to exegete this scripture, Lord, I pray that you would bind it to our hearts and that you would give us absolute confidence that every day of our lives on this earth and in every day that we will live for all eternity, there is grace upon grace upon grace that comes down through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And God, if there be one here today that doesn't know you, I pray today would be the day of their spiritual birthday. When you come and you give them the new birth, that you draw them to yourself and they experience this joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. Oh God, do this. Do this in this place today for your glory and give us grace for every challenge we face in the week ahead. We might stand firm upon the foundation of Christ and not be blown asunder. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus Christ our Lord.